0: The following is a sermon that was preached at Faith Lutheran Church in Sharpsburg, Georgia. For more information about our church, or to hear past sermons from Faith Lutheran, visit GeorgiaFaith.com. Thank you for listening. That scene in Mark chapter 9 was quite the commotion. Bickering, fighting, finger pointing. But did you see in the middle of it all, the the suffering of a father quietly going through the indignity of inability? His son, you see, is covered in scars from a childhood full of first and second degree burns. He suffers from an epileptic malady brought on by demonic involvement. And this unclean spirit puts the boy again and again in mortal peril, throws him in fire to burn him, throws him in water to drown him. Kind of makes you wonder how many cold nights in Palestine were colder because that father didn't want to take the risk of what would normally be so routine, just lighting a fire to keep the house warm but of course that could be dangerous lest the spirit strike his son in the middle of the night maybe you know some of the agony of being a parent who's always on red alert really does anyone who's always on red alert some corner of your life where everything seems to be on edge nothing is routine constantly blowing up and you're on red alert it's exhausting Now maybe you, like that father, can draw from that sometimes seemingly bottomless well of resolve to just keep plugging along, and and it seems he was surely doing such a thing. But really, that man was powerless to really actually help his son. Let me ask you, What do you do when you're powerless? How do you handle the indignity of inability? What is it you get up to? You kind of saw what he did, right? He, he's like a, he's a powerless person. He does what powerless people do. He tries to leverage something or someone to get the outcome he wants. And so he uses this tactic on Jesus. One, maybe he's used before to prompt people into action. Kind of this dare, a little bit of a dig, if you can, Jesus. I mean, you can help, but only if you can. So you and I, you know, I ask about us because I think powerless people are the only kind of people there really are. I also think that's kind of what Mark is getting at in the way he presents this scene to you and me as readers of his gospel. There's a whole list of people, all these characters, and every last one of them, whatever it is about them, we see that they're powerless. The, the father, for all of his endless investment of anguish, is powerless. The disciples of Jesus, we hear that they, in spite of their past success at exorcism, have now totally fallen on their face. They're unable, totally powerless, to help the boy. Then there's those teachers of the law, the scribes who, for all of their punctilious religious rule following, have no power at their disposal except to just kind of point fingers at what's gone wrong. So everyone is powerless, especially this poor boy whom we don't want to forget. He's a powerless person surrounded by powerless people. And so the disaster on display in Mark chapter 9 is what happens when the power we think is at our disposal, in some way or another, turns out to be powerless. Kind of like when you, you go to a light switch and you flick it on and you expect the light to come in, but, but nothing happens. You're left in the dark. Something's broken. So maybe you try again. Click, click, click. Still nothing. So what are the switches that you throw to try to bring some light where there's darkness, to bring power, to get power flowing in your life where there seems to be no power. Maybe you're like the father here, and you've tried the coercive conditional on God. You know, you say, if God is really a loving God, then he will surely do this particular thing the particular way I want him to do it. You might keep a safe and skeptical distance from God so that maybe he'll court your favor by doing you a favor. Or maybe you are the kind who likes to put people into your debt, and you you figure that'll work with God, too. You say, God, I have done this good and glorious thing that I know you command in your word, and now I think you are going to have to repay me to even out this debt that I've put you into. Are you kind of the one who scratches God's back so that he'll scratch yours? Or maybe you you like to impress as a way to get what you want. You can try to impress God. You'll say, look at my track record of spiritual achievement. This surely means God is on my side and I am on his, for God would surely want someone like me on his side, and so I can count on him to deliver the good things and the good outcomes that I want and when I want them. This is where you start to look at God as if he's that emoji which, instead of eyeballs, has stars for eyes when he looks at you. then the really pernicious thing about this is we can take all of these and if we're not feeling like we want to move upward we can also use them in reverse to move downward each one of these conditionals has a a backwards way of looking at it you might say well because I'm such a spiritual failure that must be evidence that God has no desire to have anything to, to do with me or because god has not repaid me for the good things i've done i must conclude then there's no point in doing them no obligation to do them no good that comes from them if i'm not getting some good out of them myself or you might say well if these bad things have happened to me then surely this proves that god is not a loving god or if he is a loving god he at least has something against me these are dark conclusions that lead to dark places. Sometimes it leads to violence, violence against someone else, violence against yourself, maybe. Perhaps a, a dark depression, a, a sort of cynical skepticism, maybe even a suspicious kind of mania that, that the whole world is conspiring against you, that there's a devil lurking under every rock, and if you're not constantly on the lookout, it's going to jump. Quite a commotion in this scene. Quite a commotion in our lives, in our hearts, in our minds. And what does Jesus have to say about all this? We heard about it today. He comes in and he kind of has a lot of pretty seemingly impatient things to say about it. He, he starts by rebuking. First, he rebukes the people pointing fingers at each other's failures. You unbelieving generation, how long shall I put up with you? He's got no time for this. He's had it up to the proverbial here with this kind of infighting going on in front of him. But the interesting thing, I think, is that he seems to really take exception also at the father's faithless attempt to leverage him into some kind of action if you can? Jesus replied, if everything is possible for one who believes. In other words, he's saying, look, as to that comment you made about my ability, I'm telling you that the question is not about my ability to act in this situation, but everything hinges instead, sir, on your ability to believe. So Jesus is taking the whole conversation, the whole question they're fighting about, uh, out of the realm of power, for that is settled, that's Christ's power, and into the realm of faith. Which you and I might think at first is kind of good news, because, you know, we're all about faith, we like faith. Faith is the name of this church, for goodness sake. So this would seem to indicate that we're well along the path to get where Jesus is wanting us to be. But the perceptive person realizes this is actually no improvement at all. And the father in this account is precisely that perceptive person. So you heard what he, what he said. I'll, I'll read it again. He understands what Jesus is saying, that faith needs to be involved. So he, he, he has the good sense to say, well, I do believe. But he also knows his own heart, as I know my own and you know yours. So he has to add something with a bit of honesty. Maybe he's even figured that someone like Jesus, with the reputation he has, maybe can also read his mind and his heart. So he says, Well, I do believe, but help me overcome what else I have, which is my unbelief. Help me overcome my unbelief. He, like we, was powerless to produce even the faith Jesus said was required. Now, I know that can sound like an odd thing to say. And to a lot of your Christian friends and neighbors, and maybe even in some of the Christian traditions that you've grown up in, that's not the way folks talk. That you couldn't even, by your own thinking or choosing, decide to come to Jesus or gin up in your heart the faith that Jesus says is required. I think one of the many reasons for that is is this, that it's easy to confuse faith with feelings. It's easy to gin up religious feelings. You get a lot of options to do that. There's a ton of traditional religions you could follow, all of which have a long track record of being able to produce some very strong feelings when you need it to. Then, uh, nowadays, we also have a lot of things that are becoming replacement religions. Things people follow with religious zeal, for instance, romance can be like a religion or politics or work or parenting and children, food and fitness, your appearance. These can all be areas where we throw absolute religious zeal into them and in exchange receive very powerful feelings of maybe affirmation or validation or worth. Some might even call it righteousness. And we feel like we're making some sort of spiritual progress, and we look at ourselves and we say, look how much I'm doing. This must be what faith is. I can feel it. I can feel it. But faith is not in the category of spiritual feelings we work up. It's in the category of a gift we receive. And gifts are not bought or bartered. In fact, if you try to buy or barter a gift, you ruin the nature of the gift. It's why there's humor in this joke I heard once, which is someone showed them their watch and said, Yeah, this watch has been in my family for years. I bought it from my grandfather on his deathbed. It doesn't make any sense. It wasn't a gift then. And also it would be absurd to think of buying at such a time. Faith is in the category of gifts we receive. Now that's also pretty hard for us to swallow because in our culture, we're taught something very different. It's like one one person put it, the most enduring and purely proudly American genre of writing is the to-do list, which means we are all Pulitzer Prize winners when it comes to to to-do's. And in our mythology of our society, the mark of a really substantial person is someone who has achieved great success and acquired many goods, all by their own strength and cleverness and hard work. We do not look up to beggars who have nothing. But in the story of how you and I relate to God, there's no way for us to write repair relationship with God on the same kind of list where you might write, repair the garage door. Because you might be able to do the one, but you absolutely cannot do the other. It's not within our power. When it comes to what matters most, the hard truth is we are all beggars who have nothing to offer, powerless to produce even the faith it takes to save ourselves from oblivion. And if that sounds heavy, it's because it is. The stakes are actually quite high in this story, probably higher than you might have thought. What's at stake is nothing less than your body and your soul and your eternal future. And the problem we face isn't that our feelings are out of line and need a little realignment. It's that our being is out of line. It's that we share the status and sentence of being a cosmic rebel against God. And it's not for lack of trying hard at not being that. It's for lack of holiness. Which means if sin is the problem, there's no way that it's under our control. It's precisely the opposite. We are under its control. There's no technique or technology or anything that we're going to leverage to bring this under control. We are under its control. We are not the master in this situation. The only thing that's going to help this, when we have nothing, is mercy that comes from someone else, from the outside. And so it does. On the scene is Jesus, and he, as the crucified Lord, has blood dripping from God's own hands dripping blood and death to redeem you and to redeem me and to dispel from you and from around me the darkness of sin that shrouds us all. Which means, happily, the stakes are also a lot lower than you might have feared. Because in this story, the one doing the work is the Lord Jesus. It's not you and it's not me. And what a relief, isn't that a relief to know? The one doing the work is the Lord Jesus Christ, and his work is signed, sealed, and delivered once for all to the saints, to you, to this body of believers. You don't have to leverage God to get this gift, you don't have to coerce him, you don't have to offer anything to receive it. It's not the way it works. Alongside us, powerless people—and powerless people, again, are the only kind there are—stands the Lamb who was slain. And though he was slain, he is mighty in power. He holds the sword of the spirit, which is his word. And he brings you into his church, so that Christ's church now under the banner of Christ and his victory over over death and his resurrection, you are now the, the church of Christ standing, rooted in eternity, spanning time and space, terrible as an army with banners, You're a spectacle of brightly baptized believers whose donated glory fills even demonic eyes with stabbing, searing pain. For you, who are in Christ, are in the light that no darkness can overcome, so that all the darkness is dispelled and all that's left is the light of Christ that is yours. I don't want you to miss what Mark is teaching us today in this gospel account. The Lord Jesus did step in with power where powerless people could do nothing. He he spoke up, he said, You deaf and mute spirit, I command you come out of the boy and never enter him again. When the light of the world was on the scene, no darkness could stand before him. But the point of Christ's healing power on display is not to make us say, Well, now how do I get that same thing to happen? for me right now at this time. How do I go right back to where I was before? Get God to do the thing I want and when I want it. It's not to make us say, I want that outcome. It's to make us say, I need that savior. I need him more than anything else. And that would be enough. Because Christ does not promise to intervene in every circumstance in life. That's not his promise. And until we've gone through the grave to our resurrection as well, we will still be subject in our bodies and in our minds, subject to the curse of sin and its effects. But Christ does promise, and his miracle today does display the truth of this statement, that there is no moment when a believer in his name, who has received faith in him as a gift, can ever say there is no hope in this moment, because we know it is not true. There's never a moment when the darkness has the power to overcome Christ. There's never a moment when his promise of new life and forgiveness is null and void. Christ has died to redeem you, and Christ will have the prize for which he has died. Nothing will stand in his way. No darkness No power can undo what he has done. And even more than that, since Jesus knows that we are still subject to the curse of sin until our death and resurrection, he actually in his power turns even our moments of darkness into moments where he actually draws us closer to him and reveals his glory in even greater majesty. That's what the whole crucifixion was like that. And so we with cross-shaped lives experience the same thing, that the true majesty of God's power is most visible when all your resources have been proven powerless. Now I'll make this part quick because this sermon is about Jesus and not me and because Pastor Schrader did give me strict orders not to preach for 30 minutes, like I did the last time I was here. <laughs> but some of you know that my, my daughter is a cancer survivor. She had leukemia, and now she doesn't. And for this, we are, we are just very joyful. In fact, I would say that I, I think it's the case That the most joyful day of my life probably was the day we got the phone call from the doctor saying that she was in remission and just what a what a joy and and maybe more than that just what a relief that was to to have that news but i am 100 certain absolutely that that the greatest peace i have ever known was actually the day she was diagnosed which is not something i would have expected However, I do know that many who have gone through other suffering, they would say, "No, I, th- I think you could have expected that." Because it was at that moment that all my resources, whatever I could bring to bear as a father, had, had no standing anymore. I wasn't going to invent some treatment. I wasn't going to administer any of it. I, I don't have the money to build a hospital. All of this that we were going to go through was because of someone else. All my resources were exhausted completely and so then in that time though the true majesty of God's power was most visible only when I had nothing could I see that actually because I had Christ and the promise of Christ for me and for my children in baptism then suddenly when that's all that was left to look at you could finally see with everything else stripped away just how much that really is that it really is everything. It really is everything. A light no darkness can overcome. No outcome, and the outcome was not clear. I'm able to report it today, but at the time there was no way to know. No possible outcome could take away that peace. The peace came before the outcome. Knowing that the worst thing even death can do to any believer Is usher them into the Lord's arms that is what the truth is so how do you handle the indignity of inability you run to Christ you open your ears to hear his gospel and you do this as a way of life not just when you're in trouble this becomes your pattern of life this is what you breathe it's your food, it's your drink. You, you come to your pastor week in and week out and you say, I need that savior more than anything. And the pastor will hand over the goods, week in, week out. You'll come here to this place to come before God and you'll have your hands out and your hands will be empty for you bring nothing to the table. Empty hands, obvious evidence that you and I are beggars. But in the place of nothing, we receive everything. Amen.